All right, I do invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you take notes by paper, there is uh, an insert in the bulletin, and I'd invite you to follow along in that way. I think I'm also going to, yeah, we have a PowerPoint as well, if that's helpful to you, maybe you're a visual learner. Uh, and let me just make a, uh, a public uh, confession here at the beginning. My voice range, I think, I, I've been sick all week, so my voice range is about an octave lower than normal. Uh, so, I, you know, if Paul Q needed a good bass singer in the choir, I should have, I should have volunteered today. Uh, I'm going to try to keep it under control. Sometimes when I get up a little on the higher ranges, I, I squeak and squeal. Don't, don't worry about it. I won't feel bad. I just, for your sake, I'm going to try not to do that uh, very much here today. And I do have some water. I, used to, I hate when people drink water in front of people. It always makes people thirsty. But I might need to do that uh, as we go along. Those are my confessions. Uh, other than that, I think things are going really well. So, um, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it was uh, two weeks ago that in verses 8 through 13, we saw that Paul warned the Corinthian believers about their spiritual apathy. While some of the apostles um, had sacrificed greatly and suffered much for the cause of Christ, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, some of those men, the Corinthian believers were comfortable materially he said, you have all you want, you are rich, you are filled. They were comfortable materially, but they were deceived about their true spiritual condition. They thought in verse 8 that they were reigning as kings spiritually. And Paul says, I really wish that were the case. Then by the end of verse 10, we saw about those Corinthians that uh, they were also dangerously well-liked by the world. The world liked them, whereas they barely could tolerate or stomach the apostles. And so Paul issues this very strong warning. The, the text is so strong in verses 8 through 13 that, in fact, Paul, in the very next verse, says that he is not trying to humiliate them with those words, with these things. Look in verse 14, with these things. It's verses 8 through 13. What he had just said, those strong warnings, he was not simply trying to shame them or embarrass them as if he were only aiming at their feelings, but he, he wrote those things to admonish the Corinthian assembly. He was writing to get to their hearts and to address them. And so Paul follows up that strong warning in verses 14 through 21 at the end of chapter 4 with his final solution to the sin of embracing human wisdom and incorporating it into the church. And his final solution is loving confrontation. And so since Paul loves the Corinthian assembly, he is going to confront them in many ways in verses 14 through 21, and we'll, we'll look at those here together today. Well, have you ever been in a situation before where you knew that you probably should confront someone regarding their sin? Don't you hate those? Well, some of us probably like those situations, but... Uh, most normal people don't like, like confrontation. I remember I had just become a youth pastor. I was not a youth pastor for long. One of the very first activities I, I did was we took a trip to Cedar Point uh, Amusement Park. We took, I don't know where all these teens came from, okay? We had a youth group of 60 or 70, but for this activity, we took six vans and a school bus. You know, so it's like you inherit all these kids. You don't know where they're coming from. Well, I remember I was driving a van 
on the way to Cedar Point, and uh, at one of, uh, about an hour or two into the trip, I, I was just driving down the road, and I looked in the rearview mirror, and that's when I noticed one of the teen leaders in our youth group, a teenage boy, uh, snuggling up to a young lady in the youth group in, in an appropriate way, in an inappropriate way, I should say, <laughs> in an inappropriate way. And so my first reaction, what's your first reaction when you see someone doing they shouldn't? something they shouldn't. My first reaction was, I didn't see anything, you know. But then, a few seconds later, I thought, man, I got to do something here. So, uh, we pulled into the next exit. I'll never forget. Pulled into the next exit, went to gas station. We had just stopped for gas about uh, 30 or 40 miles before. So, the teens should have been able to figure it out, but they, you know, they don't know. They're just going in, uh, oh, snacks, more Mountain Dew, more, <laughs> more soda, more candy, whatever. And as, we're, as they're coming out of the van, I, I ask this young man, I say, hey, would you help me fill up the van okay, with gas? And so he puts, I'll never forget, he puts the thing in there, he starts fueling it up, he, he fills it up for about a minute and it clicks because we just filled up with gas. But I had the opportunity to talk to him about what he was doing in the back seat there with this girl. What do you do in situations like that? How comfortable are you there? Would you rather just look the other way or would you rather get involved in their lives to help them? In this text this morning, we will learn from Paul's confrontation of the Corinthian assembly. See, Paul confronts the Corinthians on several different levels. As a matter of fact, there are at least three lessons I think we can learn today from the way Paul confronted the Corinthian church. The first lesson I have for you is in verses 14 through 19, the first part of verse 19 is what I would call the means of loving confrontation. In just a moment, I'm going to read these verses for you, but I want you to be looking in your Bible because there are at least four different means of confrontation that Paul uses with the church at Corinth to confront them regarding their sin. Look with me at verse 14. See if you can find these in your Bible before I ever give them to you. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I send you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. The first means of confrontation that Paul uses with the Corinthian church is a letter. In verse 14, he says, brethren, I write these things to you. Okay, he's talking about the epistle to the, the Corinthians that we call 1 Corinthians. And his letter, 1 Corinthians, is filled with deep emotion. And he has much to say because he does not want them to continue on in their sin. In other words, he desires to correct them and their sinful behavior. And in this text, he's been writing a lot about how they cannot exalt human leaders and be focused only on human things. And so he writes this letter to them. Perhaps you have a friend or a relative who's making wrong choices or running away from the Lord. It may be that after some prayer in your life, you might choose to sit down and write them a letter or an email that will confront them regarding their sin and their choices. 
remember years ago before the invention of email. I was in Bible college, and I remember being so burdened about the spiritual condition of my grandfather. After a sermon one day, I heard preaching on reaching the lost, especially thinking of our loved ones as lost ones instead of simply a relative. I sat down and I wrote a letter to my grandfather. My grandfather was a hardened sailor. He could give you an education about what not to say in many ways. I was always very intimidated to witness to my granddad. I, near the end of his life, I had opportunities to do that, but I chose at this point to write him a letter. And I wrote him a letter. I explained my love for my grandfather. I explained uh, the fact that he needed Christ. And I was surprised to find out after that, for, for months, he put that letter on his fridge. And my grandmother said that he read that letter just about every day. Maybe you could, maybe you could write a letter to someone who's struggling in sin. You see, as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, we have an obligation to help, especially other believers who might be overcome in a trespass or an offense. So in verse 14, Paul used a letter to confront them. And we can do the same. But then the second means of confrontation is found in verses 15 and 16. He not only used his letter with them, but in verses 15 and 16, he used his own example to them. Look in your Bible at verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. He says the Corinthians have many guides in Christ, but, but not many fathers, so they should follow him. In other words, Paul's appealing to the fact that he is their spiritual father in Christ. He saw many of them converted. And he said, because of my special relationship to you as your father, you should imitate or be imitators of me. Now, to better understand this, we look at a few of the words in verses 15 and 16. First, you see the, the words countless guides in Christ. The word guides that's used here is a word that would be used of a slave who had the responsibility for the son or the child in a wealthy family. A guide, uh, another way you could translate this, a guide was a guardian who might do things like walk the child to school to protect them. Or in some cases, the guardian or the guide would train the child himself. You see, he was responsible to take care of the child when the father was away doing his business. So the guide here speaks of those sort of slaves who would care for children. And the point that Paul's making in the text is these sort of slaves are a dime a dozen. You can easily replace guides. You can find another slave to take care of your child but you can only have one father. So as we move down to, to look at the word father, I think what he's doing here is he's emphasizing the uniqueness of his own relationship with many of the Corinthians. I mean, a guide or a guardian could never be on the same level as a father. Again, his point here with father is that, that he had been there to see them spiritually birthed when they come to know when they came to know Christ. I mean, isn't there something special about the person who was a gospel witness to you early on? Or the person who led you to Christ? Don't they have a special place in your heart? 
And, you know, even as you go along in your walk with the Lord, it is you study and know the Scripture. I mean, it may be that you learn things a bit differently than that spiritual parent, okay? It may be that your theology doesn't quite, you know, over time match up with them, but they always will have a special place in your heart because of their commitment to share the best news in all the world with you, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is doing in this text, when he says, be imitators of me, I am your father, be imitators of me, is he's appealing to example, example here, especially his fatherly example. And what might appear upon first reading like a presumptuous statement, follow me. I mean, we could take that like the height of presumption and pride, or we could learn that this is perhaps one of the best ways to confront another believer in their sin. Another thing that we can do is we can, by God's good grace, often appeal to the good character that God has enabled within the body, whether it be our own character or someone else's, and point to that person and their character, their example, as a means of exhorting this believer, this brother or sister, to turn from their sin. That leads to a third example in verse 17. Paul also sent a friend to confront them. Verse 17, that is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. In verse 17, Paul explains why he sent Timothy to them. Right before Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, got to remember, Paul's in Ephesus. He sends Timothy out. Perhaps he hears of all of the problems in the church, all their questions, and he immediately sends Timothy by land from Ephesus to Corinth. Paul then writes the letter, and other people will deliver it, but Paul's explaining here why Timothy has arrived in Corinth, why he sent them. Timothy is to remind the Corinthian believers of the, the ways of the Apostle Paul. And so this is another means of loving confrontation. Send your friend in. Okay, this is like my favorite means of confrontation. Full transparency. This is, this is like what I like to do. It's, it's a lot cleaner for me. You know, it's cleaner for me to send my friend in there. You, you go and tell them what they need to do. Okay, well, that's not exactly what Paul is doing here, but Timothy is another gentle nudge to remind them of their need for change as an assembly. And that leads us to the fourth means of confrontation that he gives in the text, verses 18 and 19, and that is a a personal encounter. A face-to-face encounter. Verse 18 says, Some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. We'll stop there for a second. Paul's also willing to use personal confrontation with the Corinthians. He will leave Ephesus and the important things that he's doing there and ministering to the Ephesian church, if necessary, and he will go face to face to confront them regarding their sins. Now, uh, I want to suggest something here about the order of these means of confrontation to you for a moment that might be helpful. Uh, I would suggest that in situations as an assembly where we're not separated by geography from each other, there's 800 miles from Ephesus to Corinth. When we're not separated by geography from each other, we might actually invert 
Paul's methods. I want to say that I think we can use any of these means to confront another believer or, or another brother or sister who involved in their sins, but I think that we should probably always start with a face-to-face encounter, a loving confrontation regarding their sin. Uh, Pastor, Jay, or Pastor Jim used to uh, have this little thing that he would do in marriage counseling called three ways of communicating. I've heard it through Pastor Paul this past week. So if it's messed up, I don't know which one to blame. Okay. But <clears throat> three ways of communicating uh, are, one, we communicate through the words that we use. The words that we choose to use. Got that? Words that we use. We also communicate through our tone of voice. And third, we communicate with body language, things like uh, eye contact or lack thereof. Okay. So there are three ways that we communicate. And uh, <clears throat> when we write a letter or an email, we lose two of those means. We cannot express a tone of voice through writing unless you're like more gifted than I am. Okay, you cannot express tone of voice unless uh, like italics and bold and all caps count. Cannot express tone of voice. And you cannot use body language when you're, when you're writing. Well, you can when you're writing, but not when they're reading it. Okay. When you call, you lose one of them. You lose body language, Right? But when you involve yourself in a face-to-face encounter, you can use all three. All three means of confrontation. I don't think it's wise for us normally to start with an email or a letter confronting someone regarding their sin. And so I would encourage you, I think this order is good. I think these means of confrontation are good for us as a church. As I'm applying it to us, I would say I would just invert the order. Starting with a face-to-face encounter and then using these other means as appropriate as well. So look down in your Bible at verse 19. So in verse 19 here, it says, but I will come to you if the Lord wills. Paul declares that he will soon come to Corinth, despite the report from some in the church that he's not going to come. He will come, and he'll say everything that needs to be said in the confrontation. He will speak the truth in love as he says in another epistle. And what I'd like to do here for just a moment before we move on to point two. Point one's my longest point by far. Uh, But what I'd like to do is I'd like to just take a moment of application. I'd like for us to consider this for a moment. As a congregational church, that's what Colonial Baptist Church is, a congregational church, um, we have an obligation as members of the assembly to lovingly, Follow Paul's example of concern and and even being concerned enough to lovingly confront each other regarding our sin. Some of you may think, though, you know, this this is Paul. I mean, he's an apostle. He's like got to confront people. Do I really need to do this? Well, let me give you just a few considerations. First of all, Paul already explained in this text that we are to be imitators of him, verse 16. Okay, so if you think, I, as a New Testament believer, I don't really need to get involved in helping people. I mean, it gets so messy. 
gets so difficult. I don't want to confront someone regarding their sin. Well, Paul says we're to follow his example. And in this text, his example is predominantly confronting sinners regarding their sin. There's another reason I think that, though, and that is because in verse 14, the word that Paul uses here is the word admonish. Okay, so look in your Bible at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And I think you make the point when you compare this word admonish that's used of Paul here to other New Testament texts that talk about the need for believers to admonish each other in the Lord. It's certainly true that there are other texts in the New Testament that talk about Paul and the other apostles or the preachers, proclaimers of Scripture, and how they admonish one another and and believers in the church. But there are several texts that you can turn to that make this point. Matter of fact, in your Bible, turn over a few pages to Romans 15, verse 16. Romans 15, 16. I want to show you two or three of these passages in your own Bible If you don't have a Bible, I do, I will put it up here. But Romans 15 and actually verse 14, verse 14 says this. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct That word is the exact same word that's translated admonish in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Although Paul had never been to the churches of Rome, he says, I am sure that you believers have what it takes. You have the wisdom to admonish one another. This is the way that he ends this passage to the church at Rome. Turn over to Colossians 3. And verse 16. There's my 16. Colossians 3, 16. I just want you to see a few of these passages. Colossians 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with all thankfulness in your hearts to God. And there in the middle of the verse, in participle form, he uses the same word. The, church, uh, the churches of Colossae and Laodicea were tasked with the need of teaching and admonishing one another in the Lord. You see, this is an obligation for all New Testament believers in Jesus Christ. Now turn to one last passage. Well, there's kind of a tack-on passage in a moment, but 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. I think this is a really great text that makes the point that I'm trying to make with you. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Okay, so this is kind of like where we get the idea, you know what, pastors, pastors have an obligation to admonish or at times even confront or correct erring believers in the church. I mean, I think we would all agree on that one, right? That's part of my job description. I don't know if it's like the first bullet point, but I think it's the second one. We need to admonish you as an assembly, but keep reading here in this text. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, here's your command. 
admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. I mean, the Scriptures make it abundantly clear that New Testament believers in Jesus Christ can't just sit back idly and watch other believers in the church just walk away from Christ. As a congregational church, the members of Colonial Baptist Church must incorporate these sort of ideas, must lovingly be willing to confront each other in our walk with the Lord. And the tack on text is 2 Thessalonians 3.15, just over a page or two in your Bible. At the very end of a passage about a lazy believer who was gossiping in the church, Paul gives very clear instruction to the church about what they should do. The church gathered together. It's their responsibility. He says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn. Same word, admonish. Admonish him as a brother in Jesus Christ. In other words, I think all these passages together show that all believers share the responsibility to help correct and admonish other believers in the local church. You see, it is not just a shepherd thing. It's a sheep thing too. As as New Testament believers, when we see other believers falling off the side and getting into trouble and going their own way, we have an obligation, an obligation to help them, to admonish them kindly in love, that they would change their their ways and follow and serve Jesus Christ. And so we ask, you, you ask the question, right? Do I really need to confront like this, like Paul? And the answer is, first Paul tells us to follow him. Then he says we're to admonish in many texts, like the word he uses in verse 14. And then this is also what we communicate in our grace church commitment. You don't have a copy of this unless you just carry it around with you. But there's a part of a grace church commitment that reads this way. I will endeavor through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in love, to remember one another in prayer, to help one another in times of need, to exercise gentleness, fairness, and humility in my dealings with those in the church, to speak the truth in love, to be faithful in any responsibilities and commitments, and to honor my fellow members. See, there's more to our Grace Church commitment. I just took a piece out of the middle. But this talks about our need to confront other people within the assembly when we see them involved in sin. This past week, I was talking with a believer who's not in our assembly, someone not in our church. As I was talking with this believer, uh, we were talking about church discipline. He had some questions to ask me, and so we were kind of working through it. And I wasn't using, just so you know, I'm not using like anything from like Colonia or something, but just from the past, from experiences I've had, and I was describing some of the situations I've been a part of as a pastor. And this solid believer, I mean, he's really a solid believer, he looked at me and he responded this way. He says, that's why I could never be a pastor. Never be a pastor. And, and what he meant by that, and he explained it even further later, he said something like, um, I, you know, I, 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 I don't know how good I would be at helping people wrestle through 
sinful issues and things like that. I didn't say much at the time, but my thought was, well, you're a sheep. You're a sheep. And healthy members in the church should see their need to help other people as well. I mean, I get his point. As a pastor, I'm responsible to lead the church through some of those difficult sort of discussions where someone is insisting on their sin and they won't repent. I get it. But, but our pastors should not be the only ones helping people through these sort of issues. Okay, so as we look at this text, we see the means of loving confrontation. Let me just go quickly uh, through the next part. The reasons for it. The reasons for it in verses 19 and then verse 20. He says in the middle of verse 19, And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Here Paul zeroes in on two specific reasons why he's going to come and confront them if necessary. The first one is arrogance or pride. In verse 18, he says some of the Corinthians are arrogant. And by saying some here, he's, he's not over-speaking. Okay, it's not the whole church, not like they're just all inflated, arrogant and proud, but some within the assembly are. And what he does is he holds the whole church accountable for dealing with the sin of arrogance. He's going to do this a little bit later on in the text as well. In, in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, he's going to have some problems that he has to confront. In chapter 5, the problem is a man is involved in an ongoing immoral relationship with his stepmother. And Paul, what Paul does, though, is he doesn't just call out the immoral sinner. He calls the whole church to do something about it. So in verse 4, he says, you know what? At your next gathered meeting, chapter 5, verse 4, when you're gathered together in the name of the Lord, deliver the man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. See, Paul is keeping the whole church accountable for the, the sin of a few of its members. And he's imploring them to do something about it. It's interesting to me that he does the same thing in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, there are some some within the assembly who are greedy. And they're so greedy that they're taking their, their brother or sister down to the law courts in a public trial right in the center section of Corinth, and they're suing them for their own financial rights. And Paul not only deals with the greed, he calls the church to, to step in and to do something about it. I agree with Gordon Fee who said this. He says, Paul is pointing the heavy guns at the church, not at the wrongdoer himself. See, he's calling the whole assembly to do something about this. I loved what my mentor, in one of my mentors in ministry, Dr. Olala, who was here for my, ordin- uh, my installation service, Love what he said about this. As a young man, I remember receiving it and thinking through the wisdom in it. He said, Brent, he said, a ministry will not be evaluated only by what it preaches, but also by what it tolerates. By what it tolerates. 
This is a New Testament church of Jesus Christ. We have an obligation to help sinners within our assembly who go the wrong way. You can't just like overlook sin and let it go as if it means nothing. I mean, if, if we're unwilling to deal with sin in loving, biblical, and true ways, then we really shouldn't even have membership. Membership. I mean, what is a member? It's mean, means that we'll hold each other accountable. We'll try to point each other to Christ. And if we see another sheep falling by the wayside, that we're going to come and we're going to surround them. We're going to pray for them. We're trying to help them in their walk with the Lord. So Paul says, I'm going to confront you regarding your arrogance and then also their lack of power in the gospel. And again, we see this uh, in verse 19 of our text. Verse 19 says in the middle, and I, I will not find the talk of these arrogant people, but of their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. I think we can understand this one pretty quickly. Not only were there some within the assembly who were proud, they also failed, these people, failed to have God's power on their life. And Paul assures them in verse 19 that he's going to come, and when he comes, he's not even going to regard what they say. Their words. That little word talk in this text is a word that we've seen all throughout chapters 1 through 4. Remember, the Corinthians boasted in words, in someone who was gifted at, at preaching or teaching, who had rhetorical flair and polish. Paul says, no, 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 I'm not going to judge you regarding your words, your talk. That's not what's important to me, but I'm going I'm I'm to come, I'm going to evaluate your spiritual power, your spiritual power. For sake of time, I won't say everything that I meant to say here, but I think Paul's basically saying something like, you know what? Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. I mean, these people, these ringleaders in the church at Corinth, they're boasting in human wisdom and human leaders. They got all the right words, but when I come, I don't care about words. I want to see is the power of God upon their life and ministry. That's what he's going to confront them <coughs> about here. Some commentators trace Paul's thought here the whole way back up to verse 8. The whole way back up to verse 8 in your Bibles, chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul says that some of them thought that they were reigning as kings. Some at Corinth had this kind of over-realized eschatology. They thought the kingdom of God has already come to this planet. And guess what the kingdom of God is, or guess who they are? It's us. We're reigning as kings spiritually. And Paul shows them in the earlier part of this text that that's not really the case. And Paul's going to confront them for their lack of power in the gospel. That leads us to one last point this morning, and that is what I call the choice regarding loving confrontation. <coughs> the choice regarding loving confrontation. He says in verse 21, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in the spirit of gentleness. Here we come to Paul's ultimate reason or method of dealing with their sin. He will come and confront their overemphasis on words 
if necessary. And so the question in verse 21 is not if he's going to come, but how do they want him to come? Do they want him to come with a rod or in love and a spirit of meekness? The word rod here is a figurative way of saying severe chastisement. This term, when it's used in the New Testament, speaks of spiritual reprimand and discipline. Paul says something like, do you want me to bring a staff or a stick with me when I come? In other words, you want me to be harsh when I come so that you can overcome your sinfulness? Another way of talking about the rod here, I think the rod is a timeless, I call it a timeless, universal motivator. A timeless, universal motivator. It transcends the time gap, right? The 2000. It now it might, always, might not always be the case in the world. But when Paul says this, just to be clear, I think this is a metaphorical way. He will not use a literal rod with them and beat them severely, but he will chasten them severely as necessary. Or they can choose, instead of the rod, they can choose love and a spirit of gentleness if they repent. This means that he will come in comfort, not in harshness. The choice is the Corinthian assembly. By the way, if you want to do some research this week, what, what do you think they chose? You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and you just read the first part of that chapter sometime this week, you'll know that the Corinthian church said, I'll take the rod, please. And so Paul does come and he, he engages in what most people would call a very severe visit, followed by a tearful letter to the church at Corinth regarding the way they're treating some sin in the church. So this morning we saw that we all have an obligation. We have an obligation. It's not a shepherd thing alone. It's a sheep thing. To look out over the assembly. To find other people who are struggling with their sin. To be so engaged and committed to their welfare. To love them enough to reach out to them. And see if we can find ways to encourage them. And strengthen them in their walk with the Lord. Let's go ahead and close our eyes, bow our heads in a moment of quiet reflection. I want to give you just a moment to think about this. Let's take a moment quietly here to consider if we've been obedient in this area. Has God prompted your heart recently about the need to confront another believer, perhaps someone in your family? or someone in this church, and do so in a loving way, but to, to instruct them, to help them, to comfort them. And have you been obedient? Been obedient to the promptings of God? My pastoral encouragement to you would be not to just quickly dismiss those thoughts in your flesh. Or don't pretend like you didn't see it. But instead, care enough to love and to confront, if necessary, for the cause of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the text of 1 Corinthians 4. Lord, I thank you for the four means of confrontation that Paul used with the Corinthian assembly. Lord, I pray that as we consider our own obligation to admonish one another in the Lord, may we be, may we be open to admonishment, and may we be willing, Lord, when necessary, to go to someone in love and to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. We thank you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.